last weekend, uh, Pastor Ed and Sheila, Gary and Kathy Pinger, and Beth and I had the privilege of attending the Keep Believing Ministries retreat. KBM is one of Edgewood's Go Team partners, and one of the highlights for me was hearing how this free gospel book, Anchor for the Soul, has now been distributed in all 50 states. In fact, when the retreat began, the only state we were missing was Rhode Island, but an order came in from a homeless shelter on that day. So to date, over 800,000 copies of this gospel book have been distributed for free across our country. That's now available in English and in Spanish. And Gary and Kathy ship these books out of a Moline storage facility. Man, didn't Justin Rumley do a great job preaching last weekend? I was able to listen to that early Sunday morning. What a super reminder of how the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ meets us at the point of our insufficiency. Imagine if you were a missionary and you had just arrived in a capital city in a country that you've never been to before. Your itinerary was suddenly changed, and now you find yourself alone in a place where people's education and intelligence, well, surpasses your own. The city is filled with people discussing art, debating philosophy, and describing the latest fads. You are the first Christian to ever visit this city. There are no churches, there's no Christian schools, and there's no moody radio. As you walk down the streets, you become, well, you become nauseated by the sheer number of statues to pagan gods. And you begin weeping because you realize that none of these people have even heard the name of Jesus. But you're there. What will you do? How will you find an opening for the gospel? Where will you begin? How will you even find someone to talk to? And who will even listen to your message? Well, that's precisely the situation the Apostle Paul was in when he arrived in Athens. Take your Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 17. There are Bibles uh, located in front of you if you want to follow along or feel free to use your mobile app. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read the first part of our passage for today. Uh, You follow along as I listen, or you you follow along as I read. (laughs) Well, I'm going to listen too, so that worked. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities 
because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching, what this new teaching is that you are representing or presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You can be seated. So two weeks ago, we were in the first half of Acts chapter 17, and we established this truth, to turn the world upside down, the word must first turn us inside out. And how are you doing in reading the Word of God every day and allowing it to turn you inside out? Our main point today is this. If we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must first build bridges, not barriers. The Apostle Paul had to bounce out of Berea because of persecution, so he made a 200-mile journey to Athens. So that orange area, Macedonia, Berea, kind of that top left area, that's where he was. He had to leave because of persecution. He jumps on a ship. He goes 200 miles south to Athens, Greece, and that's where he finds himself. He's there to wait for Silas and Timothy. And so to pass the time, he goes sightseeing. But instead of being impressed, look at verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That phrase, full of idols, means that it was covered or literally it was under idols. There were gobs of gods, small g, everywhere. One ancient writer estimated that there were 30,000 gods in the city of Athens, making it easier to bump into an idol than an individual. Athens was next to Mount Olympus. That's where the Greek gods Zeus and Aphrodite supposedly hung out. In addition, the Parthenon, which portions of that remain standing today, well, that was a temple dedicated to the goddess Athena, built on the highest hill overlooking the city. That Greek word provoked is where we get the word seizure from. Paul is so morally shocked that his insides convulsed. It's a combination of anger and sadness. Paul was deeply distressed about the depth of their depravity. Jesus had a similar reaction when he was looking at the city of Jerusalem and he saw the hardness of their hearts. And we read in Luke 19.41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he what? He wept over it. It's how Lot felt, 2 Peter 3.7, when he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. When I was working on this very part of the sermon, I took a break, and I decided to just scroll through my news feed. I hadn't checked the news that day, so I thought, well, I'm going to find out what's going on. I came across a story out of Vermont, which made me feel sick to my stomach. I'll leave out a lot of the details, but here it is in 
a nutshell, during halftime at a recent high school football game, many students and staff, teachers, went out onto the field at halftime and celebrated sexual sin in front of a cheering crowd. It gets worse. As that show was coming to an end, the school superintendent participated with the performers on the track. Here's what I wrote down a couple months ago. See if, see if this is something that resonates with you. That which is an abomination used to lead to lamentation, but has now become a celebration which demands participation. Why? Because the unthinkable has become unquestionable today. Do you agree with that? I mean, we're living in it. Leonard Ravenhill once said these words, the world has lost its power to blush over its vice, and the church has lost its power to weep over it. We're just kind of used to it. I want you to see that instead of leaving the city or complaining to the city officials, verse 17 tells us Paul first preached the gospel in the synagogue and then he built bridges with those in the marketplace and he did it daily. Now men like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, they're all from Athens. Well, they're long gone by this time. Athens is kind of on a downward trend because of its decadence. But we see that in verse 18. There were two groups of philosophers who wanted to debate with the Apostle Paul. The first were the Epicureans. They were atheists. They denied God's existence. They denied the afterlife. They were content to just live for today. Their chief goal the pursuit of pleasure. Their deepest desire, the avoidance of pain. Their motto was something like this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, Do you know any Epicureans in your neighborhood, on your campus, in your workplace, in our community, in our country? Do you know any Epicureans who live in your own heart. Well, there's a second group. They were the Stoics. They were pantheists. They believed that everything was God and God was in everything. Stoics, well, they tried to live in harmony with nature. They focused on self-control, self-sufficiency. Their attitude toward life was on of ultimate resignation. Oh, well, like their model could be summed up this way. Grin and bear it. Apathy Well, that was considered the highest virtue in life. Do you know anybody like that? Is that you? Like, I don't care. Whatever. I'm just kind of going through life. Well, some of these proud philosophers then turned to Paul and started treating him with utter disdain. They called him a babbler, (laughs) 
uh, I'm from Wisconsin, we have bubblers, but this is a babbler. Uh, Literally, that's a seed picker. A seed picker was like this little bird in the marketplace that would flit down to the ground and pick up a seed and then go over there and pick up a seed and pick up a seed over there. They're saying to Paul, Paul, you're picking up all these different ideas and you're just babbling about it. Paul, you're contemptible. You're just collecting fragments. But would you observe that others were quite interested and they wanted to know about this new teaching, so they brought him to the Areopagus. That's the highest court in Athens. You see, their theology had room for additional gods. They're like, okay, you're preaching about Jesus? Okay, tell us more. We'll just add him to all the other gods we have. Several years ago, I was talking to a Hindu And he was telling me all these different gods that he prayed to and even had names for them. And I started talking about Jesus. And he said, well, I could just believe in Jesus and just add him to my other gods, small g gods. And I said, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is the only God. And he's the only way. He's the only life and the only truth. He quickly changed the subject. Listen, Athens was filled with idols and ideas. Uh, Things haven't changed much, have they? John Kelvin nailed it when he said this, the human heart is an idol factory. We just churn out idols. Every one of us, he writes, from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. Well, in particular, the Athenians, would you note, they spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In essence, they were into fads. A fad is something people are interested in for a short period of time, only to have something new get their attention, and then they're into that until the next newest thing comes along. Examples from the past include pet rocks, or how about cabbage patch kids, or beanie babies. Some of you are like, what, beanie babies are out? I still have them. (laughs) For the Athenians, if something was trending on Twitter, popular on TikTok, a viral video on YouTube, the milk crate challenge on Instagram, or the most viewed show on Netflix, they're all over it. And then they're on to something else. Listen. For 800 years of Greek mythology, 500 years of Greek philosophy, they are still searching for something novel to satisfy. And they couldn't find it. They couldn't find it. Eric Hoffer writes this, the fear of becoming a has-been keeps some people from becoming anything. Now, as we walk through this text, I want us to see Paul's approach as a model for us as you and I live on mission with the intelligent, atheistic, pleasure-seeking, self-sufficient, and apathetic people in our lives. I don't want us to just go, that's cool what Paul did. I want us to see what Paul did as a model for us and that we adopt this same strategy. His words are clear. They're concise. They're very much to the point. Because if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, you and I must build bridges, not barriers. 
So the Epicureans were all about enjoying life. The Stoics, well, they were all about enduring life. Apostle Paul is going to show us how they can have eternal life. This is really a fulfillment of Paul's purpose. Jesus said in Acts 9.15, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So here then are six ways that you and I can build gospel bridges with unbelievers. The first one might surprise you. You might even push back a little bit. Number one, compliment what you can. We see this in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Don't miss this. Paul was repulsed by all their idols and all their ideas, but he was respectful to them. He was nauseated, but he didn't get nasty with people. What a great approach. He doesn't denounce them or attack their idolatry. In fact, he pays them a compliment. He basically says, as I've been walking around your city, I've noticed one thing about you. You're a very religious people. Notice he didn't begin by saying, I've come to expose your sins, you dirty, wretched, hell-bound, idol-worshiping, heathenistic pagans. (laughs) He didn't take that approach. Question, do you look for ways to compliment somebody who's not yet a follower of Christ? Or are you so angry that they have a different view than you that they that their behavior bugs you so much, their beliefs bother you so much, you're like angry and just like judgment oozes out of you. Listen, write this down. We should never be surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians. They're acting that way because they don't know Jesus. And remember to be kind not cold and abrasive. See, unbelievers pick up on our attitude, so we need to be careful. Let's make sure we're building bridges, not putting up barriers. One pastor said it like this. This is so helpful. If you're not filled with indignation, you will not have courage to do what Paul did. And if you only have indignation, you won't have the gentleness that you need. Well, let's take this to a deeper level. In the midst of our cultural chaos, in our decadent depravity, our societal sins, like new sins are invented like almost every day, with all that swirling around us, how do we respond? Well, there's some options. We could isolate. That happened at times in church history. People retreated to monasteries. Or we could insulate ourselves. It's not easy to isolate, so I'll just stay away from people who don't know Jesus. I'll just spend all my time with other Christians. Third response, and unfortunately this happens far too often, is just to imitate, just to start doing the same things that people who don't know Jesus are doing. Here's the fourth response. Infiltrate, that's the heart of Jesus. As light were to expose darkness and point people to the light of the world. As salt 
We are to act like a preservative in society and make people thirsty for Jesus. One of my pastor friends said it like this, we must stop thinking us versus them and more us for them. Listen, if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not put up barriers. Number two, connect to a need. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That word observed means to behold attentively. They erected an altar to an unknown God because they didn't want to inadvertently leave out a God and be in trouble. So they're like, okay, there's probably another God out there. Let's just call him the unknown God. They didn't want to miss him. Well, Paul observed that. And it showed Paul that they have a deep desire to please God even if they didn't know who he was. In effect, he said, you admit you don't know this God, so let me tell you about him. The God they thought was hidden was the God Paul was about to openly proclaim to them. Well, don't miss this. Paul hung out where people lived and worked. That's a key principle. You've got to know people if you want to be able to build a gospel bridge to them. And as Paul walked around this pagan city, he looked for connect points or bridges from their world to the gospel. In missions, these are called redemptive analogies, which are cultural or traditional beliefs that the missionary can use as a springboard to explain the gospel message. One of the best books on missions I've ever read is called Peace Child. It's written by Don Richardson. He was a missionary to the cannibalistic, head-hunting, Sawi tribe of Irian Jaya. And he struggled to communicate the gospel message. Here's why. Because though it was one tribe, they lived in different villages, and the different villages would fight one another, and they were all about revenge, and one of their values was murder. So people were being killed all the time, and it seemed that there was no hope of peace. That tribe, however, had a legendary custom. Here's the custom. If one village gave a baby boy to another village, peace would prevail between the two villages as long as the child lived. The baby was called a peace child. When Don Richardson discovered that, he used that as a connect point to help them see this truth. Jesus is God's peace child. And because he lives eternally, his peace will never end. That redemptive analogy was the key that unlocked the gospel for the Sawis. And in the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, many came to faith in Christ and a strong evangelistic church was launched. Brothers and sisters, Are you spending enough time with your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers to find these connect points? Do you know what their interests are? Do you know those things that make them weep, those things that make them laugh? Do you know what they're concerned about? 
Have, have you discovered any idols in their hearts? Listen, if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not barriers. Thirdly, observe, clearly present God. <laughs> Note how bold Paul was, verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, uh, this I proclaim to you. This probably made them sit on the edge of their stone seats. That phrase, worship as unknown, literally means in ignorance. It's as if he's saying this, you admit there's a God you don't know. I happen to know that God, and I'm going to proclaim him to you. Listen to verses 24 to 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So, in the midst of these multiple gods, would you notice how Paul begins? The God, not another God, the God. He contrasts the one true God with their innumerable idols. Why? Well, because there is only one God. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. And then Paul begins a theology proper lesson here, verses 24 to 25. Here's what I see. First, he says, God is the creator of everything. God is Lord of all. God cannot be contained in a building. God does not need anything from anyone. And finally, God sustains his creation. In verse 26 and 27, Paul transitions to another part of biblical theology. We could call this theological anthropology, the doctrine of man. Notice the entire human race can be traced to Adam. That's why we believe Genesis is the word of God and we take it seriously. Every nation of mankind comes from one man. In that sense, there is only one race, the human race. I want to just point out, Paul here is confronting the racism of the Greeks. Because here's what they thought, that everyone who could not speak Greek, they had a name for them. You know what they called them? Barbarians. Paul is establishing here that no nation, no race is superior. Why? We all come from one ancestor. Next, God determines the time and place for every individual and every nation. And God put within us a desire to know him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity into man's heart. God exists. He's the creator. He's supreme. He's sovereign. He's involved. He sustains and... He's drawing you to himself. One pastor said it so well. You didn't make God. He made you. He doesn't need you. You need him. 
And he's looking for you even when you're not looking for him. And then Paul circles back around and he finds another connect point to the culture. He quotes two of their pagan poets to establish the uniqueness of God. And then he bridges to biblical truth. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's taking on the culture of Athens there. See, as Paul was saying this, his listeners were no doubt gazing at the gods and the costly statues displayed on the Acropolis. Would you note next what Paul does? He calls for repentance. He compliments, he connects, he clearly presents God, and then he calls for repentance. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, in our country's sloppy, sentimental spirituality, in in our country's preaching of easy believism, I fear the evangelical church has stopped preaching repentance. This is a really important doctrine. We read right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. You'd think, oh, what did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Book of Acts, repentance is all over the book of Acts. Let me just choose one. Acts 3.19, Peter's preaching. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That's what the word repentance means, to turn, that your sins may be blotted out. Next verse, that times of refreshing may come. Repentance leads to forgiveness and times of refreshing. Number five, clarify who Christ is. See, it's not enough to just compliment, not enough even to connect. We must clearly present God because people don't know today and call people to repentance. And then, because there's so much confusion about Christ, well, we must clarify who he is. Note how Paul does that here. I'm in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, here then is a short course on Christology, the theology of Christ. Two main headings. Everyone will face the judgment of Jesus. Are you aware that that day of judgment is fixed and it's inescapable? John 5.22, for the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. Hebrews 9.27, and just as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. The second point Paul makes is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection is proof that Jesus is God and proof that he is alive. He has conquered our depravity. He's conquered death, and he's conquered the devil himself. 
Observe, Paul hit on sin, righteousness, and judgment. Oh, that should stir our memory. Because in John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said that that's the Holy Spirit's role. Listen, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Paul was not afraid to speak of the inescapable day of judgment. He did not shrink back from speaking the truth about the resurrection of Jesus, even though he knew that many of them didn't want to hear it. He celebrated the supremacy of Christ, and he did not shy away from speaking about sin. Let me say it as succinctly, and you're like, well, that'll be a change. (laughs) Let me say it as succinctly as I can. You will either face Jesus as judge or you will face him as your justifier. You will either be condemned because of your sins or you'll be commended because the Savior has forgiven your sins. You'll either go to heaven because Jesus has taken on your curse or you will be cursed forever in a hot place called hell. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Don't leave the next part out. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, as God gives you opportunity, speak boldly for Christ. Be unashamed. Tell people how Jesus died in their place, how they can be forgiven for all the sins that they've committed. Call them to repentance in light of the resurrection because judgment is coming. Listen, if we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not barriers. There's one final element good for us to remember in Paul's connecting strategy. Commit the results to God. These three results are still very common today. Let me remind you, we're not responsible for how people respond. Note that first, some rejected. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They made fun of it. Others were reluctant. They said, we'll hear you again about this. Now, maybe they, they, they were processing and they needed more time. That's the state of some of you. You're in process. You're not yet saved. You're gathering information as you're, as you're considering the claims of Christ. But I fear a lot of them were just procrastinating. They're like, oh, I'll think about that later. And would you note, just a few received Some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It's often just a few who will be convinced. Many will reject. Some will be reluctant. A handful will receive. The gospel was not well received in Athens, but that's not Paul's fault. Listen, regardless of how someone responds, it's our responsibility to do all we can to connect them to Christ. Our job is to simply sow the seed of the gospel. As far as we know, no church was ever launched in Athens because of Paul's preaching. In fact, this is the first and last time Athens is even mentioned in Scripture. Now, as we summarize what we've learned today, 
In an effort to personalize these points, I want you to think right now of somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus. Think of that person. Okay, now take the next step and take that image that you have of their face, what they look like, and put it on the screen of your mind. Think of that person who's far from Christ. And now let me go back over our points. Let's personalize them with that individual in mind. What can you compliment about that individual? Secondly, how can you connect that person to a need? Beth and I, on our way to church, in fact, we were on 38th Street, a lot of times people say, you know, I used to go to church and I've fallen away from that and it it came to us. Well, maybe we could say something like this to that person, like, hey, you used to go to church. I bet that was, I bet you enjoyed that going to church. Hey, can, can I share with you how you can reconnect with that or connect you to God for the first time? Number three, ask God to give you courage to clearly present God. Call for repentance. Clarify who Christ is. And then as you share the gospel, remember to commit the results to God. If we're going to reach unbelievers with the gospel, we must build bridges, not barriers. Let's consider some action If you have not yet repented and received Christ, that's your next step. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Secondly, look for opportunities to connect with non-Christians. One of the members of our growth group on Wednesday night has been sharing about how God has been using her in witnessing. She's become very intentional about it, praying about it. And this last week, she shared an experience, and I thanked her. I said, that's sharpening all of us, to which she said, with a big smile on her face, why would I not? He saved me. Friends, increasingly, we live in a foreign land We are strangers and aliens here, but we are called to live on mission. And God has given you neighbors to love and witness to. You live where you live by his design. He puts you in the place you're in on purpose for his purposes. To say it another way, see yourself as a missionary cleverly disguised as a student or a waitress, or an electrician, or an engineer, or a parent, or a grandparent, or a receptionist, or a plumber, or a realtor, or a driver, or a construction worker, or an accountant, a nurse, a med tech, or as a senior citizen. Edgewood hosted the intentional, or the Legacy Grandparenting Summit this past weekend, and I want to just share two sentences from that, from John Stone Street. The kingdom of God advances when ordinary people live for Christ with everything they have and everywhere they go. Here's another one. This is for grandparents. Grandparents are to be winsome missionaries to the cutest mission field in the world. (laughs) You know, over the years, people have asked me where Edgewood is located. And I've shared this map with you before, but I often tell them that Edgewood is scattered throughout the Quad Cities and located on the continents through our Go Team partners. Oh, and Edgewood is also located here as we gather weekly for worship. 